You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, today we are taking another step forward in our set of sermons through the book of Genesis. And really, it's the first 11 chapters in Genesis. And when we started a couple of weeks ago, uh, we tried to answer the question, why are we working through this section of the scriptures? Of all the places in the Bible, why are we saying over the next few months, we're going to concentrate our time right here in these opening chapters of the scriptures? And one of the answers that we gave to that question was, um, one reason is because Genesis helps us understand our world. That's one of the benefits of reading the book of Genesis. It gives you a way of seeing and interpreting and understanding this world that you inhabit. Or we could say it this way. Genesis uh, builds the framework for a world view, a way of viewing the world, understanding, interpreting uh, the world. So think about the questions that Genesis in these opening chapters answers for us. Questions like, who is God? Is there a God? Who is God? What is that God like? Genesis is answering those and building a framework for us to look at the world uh, with. Uh, Questions like, where did the universe come from? Jimmy did such a good job last week of working through uh, Genesis 1. It's got a lot of complexity to it. And just working through and helping us understand Genesis 1. Where did the universe come from? Genesis uh, wants us to see that, wants us to have an answer for that. Uh, Where did marriage come from? What is marriage? What does it mean to be male and female? These are all questions uh, that the book of Genesis answers. Um, What's wrong with the world? Right? Why are things like death and murder and prostitution and polygamy, why, why are these sorts of things in the world? Uh, well, Genesis uh, has a way of answering that. If you could picture a little boy this week uh, looking up at his parents after seeing Russia invade Ukraine and him looking up to his parents and saying, why in the world do things like this war, why, why does war exist? There are a lot of places in the Bible you could go to and maybe unpack some answers to that, but they all find their footing right here in Genesis chapter one, or the first four chapters of Genesis anyway. You just read the first four chapters of Genesis Genesis, and you have your answer to that question. Or picture that little boy asking this question. Really, this is the question that's making our morning today. Where did we come from? What are human beings? What are we made for? What's the purpose of a human being? Picture a little boy asking that question to his parents. There's a lot of places in the Bible you could go to begin to build answers to that, but the best place for you to go in the scriptures is Genesis chapter one. Every other answer is gonna find at the foundational level, Genesis chapter one. And here's what we learn in Genesis chapter one about human beings. What is a human being? The most foundational thing we can say is that a human being is a person made in the image of God. This is what it means to be human. You are made in the image of God. So follow along. This is day six of creation, Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Next week, we're going to deal with that part, what it means to be male and female and how that intersects with our humanity. Uh, But today, I want to focus on that phrase that we find three times in this text. Let us make man in our image or after our likeness. It's, those are synonyms. It's just two ways of saying the same thing. Then you see it again in, in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. We are created in the image or the likeness of God. Again, this is the most foundational thing we can say about what it means to be a human being. Now let's ask the question, what does that teach us about humanity? What does that teach us about our lives, about your life, about my life? What what do we learn from Genesis 1 being created in the image of God? I want to give you four things that we learn uh, this morning. There are literally hundreds of things that we learn. This is not a small topic. This is a huge, expansive topic. But I want to give you four central things uh, that being made in the image of God means for you and for me. Uh, First, I want to show what it means that we're not. So it does clarify on the negative side. It it does mean uh, something that we're not. So here's the first one. Uh, Part of what it means to be made in the likeness of God, it means that you are not God, that that we are not God. Uh, Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make man into God. It doesn't say that, does it? Thankfully, that's not what Genesis 1 said. It doesn't say that God makes us into a God. No, there is one God in the scriptures, and that God isn't us. Amen? We are not God. Man is made in the image of God, after the likeness of God. That is very different than saying man is God. Right? The Bible is clear. There is one God, and we are not that God. But this is the human temptation. This is one way for us to think about what lies at the center, the core of sin. Sin is us grasping to be God. We're not content with being like God. We want to grasp for the place of God. We really want to kick God out of his place, and we want to become God. We want to rule. Right? This is at the core of what sin is. Listen to John Stott talk about this. He says it this way. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. If you want to cut sin down to the core, this is what you find. You find a human being saying, God, I don't like the way you have set up the universe, so you step aside, and I'm going to run the universe for a moment. That is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Man, he goes on to say, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. See, if when you think about sin, you primarily think, well, it's like this little behavioral problem in my life. If that's what you think, you have greatly diminished what sin is in the Bible. According to the scriptures, sin is treason against God. It's, it's trying to dethrone God, dethrone God and enthrone yourself. That, that's what sin is. Sin is not the result of us acting as if there is no God. Sin is the result of us acting like we are God. That, that's sin. It's an attempt to overthrow King Jesus and to carve out a little kingdom for ourselves that, that we run and that we rule and that everything in that little kingdom is going to revolve around us and it's all going to be about us. That's what sin is. Uh, We were talking about this with uh, our kids last night, and uh, our youngest looked back at me and said, Dad, that 
I make sin sound so much worse than I thought. And I'm like, yeah, it is bad. It is treason against God. So here's what the Bible does in the opening chapter of the Bible. It reminds us of who we're not. We are not God. Now, ask yourself the question, am I living in that awareness? Not just of who I am, but of who I'm not. Am I living in the awareness right now that I am not God? Because the truth in all of our hearts is that sin still remains in us, even, even after Jesus has rescued us. You may be a follower of Jesus in Christ, and if that's you, sin still remains in you. And that means that this right here is going to be a daily battle. That tendency to commit treason against God, to dethrone God and enthrone you, that's going to be a daily battle for you, for me. When the reformers, when they talked about sin, uh, I, I love the way they talked about it. They talked about sin as um, one of the effects of sin is it curves us in on ourself so that when we wake up in the morning, we naturally assume, we don't have to convince ourselves of this, we just naturally assume that the entire universe revolves around us, right? That, that God revolves around us, that the rest of these 8 billion people that God has made, they all revolve around us. Everything exists for our enjoyment. Everything exists for our pleasure. Everything exists to give me what I want in life. We wake up and we naturally assume that. That, that is the sort of natural disposition of our heart to think like that, that we are the center of the universe, that, that everything revolves around us. So here's the first battle we have to fight and win every single day of our lives. It's the battle to remember, I am not God. I'm not God. God is God. The universe is not about me. The universe is about God. I am not the point. God is the point. And here's the thing in all of our lives. The more we think we are the point, the more we think we are the center of everything, the more we will be enslaved to a thousand other sins. It is impossible to be a heroic father and husband if you think the world revolves around you. It is impossible to be a great mom and wife if you think the world revolves around you. It is impossible to be a great friend, a great coworker, a great neighbor, a great classmate, a great anything if you think the world revolves around you. So here is the first battle that has to be fought and won. I am not God. So ask yourself, am I living in the awareness of what I'm not? Genesis 1 reminds us of what we are not. It's announcing there is a God but we are not him. We are not that God. What else do we learn about ourselves from being created in the likeness or the image of God? Yes, we learn what we're not, but we also learn what we are. We are not God, but here's what we are. We are royalty. That's what God has made in you, royalty. 
kings and queens. That, that's what he's made in, in human beings. Now, think for a second about all that God's created. It, it is amazing to just sort of get behind the curtain of creation and just to notice uh, the, the amazing things that God has made. If you just get a uh, Google, the, the universe, and you just start looking at pictures, it's an amazing thing. Uh, right? Galaxies and solar systems and black holes and planets and stars and moons. Uh, then there's things on this planet like Mount Everest. Uh, there's things like Alaska in the summer. It is, it's like Narnia. It's unbelievable. There's things like the Grand Canyon. Uh, there's things like an African safari. It's just amazing uh, the variety and the beauty. I mean, this world really is Phenomenal. It's, it's an amazing thing that God has made. But none of the beauties in this world compare to the crown of God's creation. Human beings. Human beings are the pinnacle. They are the crown of what God has created. God pronounces over them this amazing declaration. He says, they are like God. He just announces it, declares it. They are in my image. That is a shocking way to describe a part of his creation. And this is how God has described you, like me, in my image. He has announced it. He said, I have stamped every human being with worth and dignity and value that is unequaled across the rest of my creation. Royalty. That, that's what I have made. And it's really amazing to notice in Genesis chapter 1 that our royalty is received, not achieved. That's an amazing thing to, to look at. It's, it's shocking because it's so different than how our current world works. Here's the, the, the sort of ethics of our current world. We live in a world that bestows worth based on your work, your accomplishment, your fame, your brilliance, your um, wealth. Our world bestows worth based on those things, but, but not so in Genesis 1. Our worth was announced before our work, before we accomplished anything, before we did anything, God pronounces over us. He, he announces image bearer in my likeness. Part of what we learn in Genesis 1 is our worth is intrinsic to us. It's, it's not produced by us. It's just something that God announces over us. Our royalty, our worth is given by announcement. It's not earned by achievement. It's an amazing thing to consider in this text. Your royalty is received, not achieved. Now, probably the clearest place to see human royalty or human worth is in Genesis chapter 9. And uh, in verses 5 and 6, you can flip over there. And I want to read these uh, two verses to you and just consider the logic of the text. In Genesis 9, here's what we find in verse 5. God says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Okay, now think about the, the sort of logic of the verse, what, what we're addressing here. God is addressing murder. One man taking the life of another person, right? That's murder. And God here is sanctioning capital punishment. Now, why does God do that? Why is that? Well, look at verse 6. He gives the answer. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For 
God made man in his own image. Think about the reasons this text does not give. He doesn't say, um, here's the the reason for capital punishment. It's to uh, prevent future murders. Maybe or maybe not. It might help with that. I I don't know. But that's not the reason the text gives. Uh, The reason is not for the justice of the murdered man's family. It might give some of that, but that's not the reason in this text. Here's the reason God gives. Because the murdered man is in the image of God. Because the murdered man is royalty. Filled by God with unspeakable dignity and worth and value. That's the logic of the text. I love how one author says it. He says, if you look into the face of any man, you will see the face of God. Isn't that amazing to think about? I mean, just look around this room. When you're looking at a human face, through that face, we are seeing the very face of God. James uses very similar logic in James chapter 3, verse 9. He's addressing the tongue, how uh, so often our tongue is out of control. And he goes on to say, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. We say such amazing things about God. And then he says, we go on to curse people with it. It's just so inconsistent. And then he's going to give us a reason why we should not curse other people with it. He says, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I mean, there's a lot of reasons James could could get for not cursing people, right? Uh, For not using our words to harm and to maim people. But here's the reason he gives. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1. He finds his footing. Every other answer is going to find its footing right here in this text in Genesis 1. He's saying, here's the reason. Because that person is royalty. They are filled with unspeakable worth and dignity. They are made in the likeness of God. To be made in the image of God is to be given unspeakable dignity, worth, value, to be a king or a queen on this earth. That's what being made in the image of God means. Now, there are literally hundreds of ways we could apply this to our lives. Uh, But let me just work through a couple. How does the Imago Dei, the fact that human beings are created in the image of God, what are some of the ways that that um, shapes the way we live and the way that we see our world? Let's take the issue of race as an example. Why is racial oppression wrong? Why is that? There's a lot of ways to answer that question, to build a framework for that question. But every legitimate answer to that question is going to find, again, its footing in Genesis chapter 1. Here's the reason why it's wrong is because every human being is royalty. Every single human being, filled with just immeasurable worth. And our royalty transcends our race. So before you are whatever your skin color is, you are first royalty, your first image bearer, your first made in the likeness of God. That is the most foundational thing we could say about any human being. This is who you are, royalty. You're stamped with the image of God. And this was foundational to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. It's one of the things I so appreciated about that movement then as opposed to this movement now. The 1960s was driven out of the church. So all of its sort of racial justice um, leanings and, and, and that whole movement was based on the Imago Dei. It's, it found its footing in Genesis chapter 1. 
I love what Martin Luther King Jr. famously said. He said it this way. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Yes. And why is that? Precisely because every man is made in the image of God, he goes on to say. The image of God is what makes racial oppression so wrong. We could apply it to babies in the womb. Why is abortion wrong? Uh, There's plenty of places you could go in the Bible to address that question, but here's the most foundational thing we could say to that. What makes it wrong is because that little unborn baby that's still in the womb is an image bearer, royalty, made in the likeness of God. That's why abortion is wrong. We could apply it to pornography. Why is pornography evil? Again, there's many things we could say about uh, pornography, but the most foundational thing we could say is this. The person on the screen is royalty. That's what that person is. That man, that woman is royalty. Filled with dignity and worth and value that words just can't even describe. And when we participate in pornography, what we're doing is we are turning royalty into a slave for our consumption. That's what pornography does. It degrades human dignity. It distorts the image of God. That's why it's wrong. That's the most foundational thing we could say. (laughs) Before we move on, I want to make sure that you're feeling this and seeing this, not just on a communal level, but on a personal level. So, yes, what I'm saying is we are royalty. That, That is true. Every human being is royalty. But I want to make sure that you hear me say clearly, I also mean that you are royalty. Not, I don't want you to see it as a, what other people are. I want you to see it as what you are. You are royalty. In Genesis 1, it's not just, it's not just written to us globally. It is written to us globally, but it's also written to you specifically. It wasn't just written to convince you of what other people are. It's written to convince you of what you are. You are royalty. Now, here is what I know, because I know many of you. There are so many of us who came in this morning, and we looked at ourselves in, mo- in the mirror today when we woke up, and what we saw in the mirror was so much less than how Genesis 1 describes us. When we see ourselves and we think about how God sees us, some of us came in assuming that when God sees us, he sees something disgusting. He sees a loser. He sees a person who just can't get their life together. He sees a drug addict. He sees a person who just can't keep their marriage going and keep it on the, it just, surely he sees me like that. And I want to look at you today and just hoping that the Lord would just whisper this in your own heart, 
That is not the way he looks at you. God has created you in his likeness. You are an image bearer of God. He has stamped the deepest parts of your soul with an image of himself. And when he looks at you, what he sees is royalty, not a loser. But what he sees is a person filled with so much dignity, so much value, so much worth. And this morning, it's breaking his heart that when you look at you, you don't see dignity, and you don't see worth, and you don't see value. So so may the Lord just look at you today and whisper into your ear, this is what I see, royalty. A person filled with so much, just immeasurable worth and value and dignity. We are royalty. Now, being created in the image of God doesn't just give us dignity. It also gives our life direction. Uh, Being made in the image of God doesn't just mean, hey, your life matters. It does mean that, but it means more than that. It's, It's also showing us what we were made for. Here's the third thing we learn about being created in the image of God is that we were made to rule for God. We were made to govern or rule for God. Look at Genesis 1 again. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That's the first thing we learn after we learn we are made in the image of God. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God, the direction it's going to point our life in. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And skip down to verse 28. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then, he says this, And subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. After God creates us, he gives us two tasks in this text. He says, fill the earth. Like, make babies, have big families, do the thing, right? And we are so pro all of that. We are pro big families. We love that. This is part of what God has has made us to do, is to fill the earth. But then secondly, he says, subdue the earth. He's saying, I want you to exercise your royalty. Here's how you do that. Here's how you exercise your royalty. You're going to rule for me. You're going to to exercise dominion on my behalf over the rest of creation. Or we could say it this way. God has made you to govern in his place. God has made you to do that. This is like what he has created you and made you to do. This is the direction. This is the, the vocation of your life. He's made you for this, to to govern in his place. So just imagine with me that a king who has a flourishing, huge kingdom, he comes to you and says, uh, hey, I'm going to be gone for a minute, and while I'm gone, I want you to govern for me. So I want you to do all the things I would do, but I'm going to entrust this kingdom to you. And he doesn't ask you He doesn't get your permission for that. He just says, this is what's going to happen. I'm leaving. You are now the new governor. You're going to rule in my place. You're royalty. So I want you to exercise that royalty, and I want you to to govern. I want you to to treat this world like I would treat it. I want you to do what I would do in my kingdom. I'm going to leave. You're going to govern in my place. That, my friends, 
is the story of every human being. That is your story. It's my story. This is what God has looked at us and said. I'm leaving. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up as royalty. And I want you to rule. I want you to govern in my place. I want you to create and to cultivate. I want you to defend and protect. I want you to do all the things I would do to help this kingdom, this world flourish. And this is weighty work. Because one day the king is going to come back and settle accounts. One day the king is going to come back and judge his royalty in how they have ruled, how they have governed. One day God's going to come back and, and do that to his image bearers. So what would it look like for us to rule well? Well, I think it's good to know that you are not responsible for everything, right? God's creation is huge. The universe is pretty big, right? So you're not responsible for everything, but every image bearer is responsible for something. God has made you as royalty. And as royalty, he wants you to govern. He wants you to rule in his place. And he has fashioned your life. He's fashioned you in particular to take some domain of his creation and to exercise dominion. To, to lead there, to rule there, to make sure that little segment of his creation is flourishing and all that God would want it to be. So every royal image bearer, every one of us, every human being, in particular, every human being redeemed by Jesus needs to have an answer to this question. How am I ruling for God? How am I governing for God? In what area am I doing that work? In what areas of my life? How is, how is my royalty being expressed in my life? What, what God has made me for? And listen, I, I want to just say this again to you. This isn't just like some cute thing to note about your life that God has made you to rule. No, this is what, this is the essence of your life. This is what God has created you to do. This is the purpose of your life. Some of us came into this room today and we are so aimless right now. And God is looking at you today and saying, I have made you royalty. And I have given you work to do, things to do, things for you to subdue, to, to exercise dominion over. I've given you that work to do. And every image bearer needs to have in their life a, a sense of calling and awareness of these are the ways that God is calling me into these things. This is how that, that royalty is being expressed in my life. And gosh, there are hundreds of ways, thousands of ways that might play out in a human life. Uh, for some, maybe the Lord has gifted you with starting things. Uh, you have a good idea. That good idea would bless your neighbors and your community. So you start a business uh, in an effort to serve your community and your area and the people around you. That, that is, uh, that's exercising royalty, right? That's subduing. That's exercising dominion. Or maybe you're a teacher, and you go to school every day, and you are just giving your life away to help little boys and little girls grow up into men and women. It's a beautiful way to exercise dominion. Maybe you're the creative type, like our worship team. When they sit down to create a song to serve our church family, they are exercising dominion. When an artist sits down to paint, they are subduing when an author sits down to write, they are subduing. They're exercising dominion. When a mom and dad gathers their family together and they say, we're going to do a family devotion. 
because we want to make sure you learn about the person of God. We want you to see Jesus. We want you to know Jesus. They are exercising dominion in their house. They are ruling for God. They are governing in the place of God in their house. When a husband looks at his wife and says, our marriage is not what it should be, and he repents, and prayerfully they put together a plan of how they can take steps forward so their marriage can sing again. That is a husband governing in the place of God. That is him ruling, exercising his royalty. When a family opens up their home to adoption or fostering, when a crew from our church goes to downtown Dallas or downtown Fort Worth to bless and serve the homeless, they're exercising dominion. They're expressing in a right way their royalty. Uh, to, to all of our teenagers and kids in the room, when, when, when you are in a class and a bully is picking on another kid, and you step between that kid and that bully, you are exercising dominion. You are expressing your royalty in the right way, creating, cultivating, defending, protecting. You're doing the very thing God has created you to do, what, you, what you're made to do. And again, I just want to remind you of this. This is not a cute idea. This is, this is the, what you're made for. You're going to feel so purposeless in life unless you can see this and then get about the work of this. Part, part of what the Imago Dei is calling you to, the fact that you are created in the image of God, your, your royalty, is, is meant to get your life leaning forward into this world, asking the question, God, what is it that you want me to do? What places do you want me to go? How can I create and cultivate, defend, protect? God, what is it today that you want me to do? What do you want me to get my life to? It is a call to reject passivity and to lean forward, asking the Lord to show you the, the unique purposes, the places that he wants you to exercise your royalty, to, to rule in his place, to govern in his place. We are made to rule for God. And then fourthly, what do we learn from the Imago Dei? The fact that we're created in the image of God. We learn that we are made to reflect God, to reflect God. I love the illustration of a mirror. If you can picture God as the sun, and we are down here on earth, and it's cloudy. The sun just is not breaking through. But for every image bearer, the clouds part, and the beam from the sun, from God, shoots right down onto the image bearer. We are meant to be this mirror that's just held at a 45-degree angle. And as the beam of God comes down and, and lands on us, it hits the mirror, and then it shoots out horizontally to the world so the world can see the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty, the holiness, the love of God. That's, that's what your life is meant to be, a mirror. As royalty, you were made to reflect God. You were made to be a glory reflector. Again, this is not like a cute thing to know about your life. No, this is like the essence of what you were made for. And the more you're living in how God has designed you and the world to work, the more your life is going to flourish. The more you turn your back on that, the more you're going to diminish your life. You were made to be a mirror, to be a glory reflector. Think about, think about what an image or a picture is. So up on the screen is going to be a picture of my daughter, Eva. She's amazing. 
And that's an amazing pork chop there too, just as an aside. If you want to reconvince yourself that there is a God, that pork chop will likely do it for you. So think about what that picture is. That picture is not Eva. That picture is a representation of Eva. It is made in the likeness of Eva. Now, what is that picture for? It's meant to show you what Eva is like. It's meant to represent the real thing that stands behind the picture. So that if you were to see Eva today, you might not know Eva. But you're seeing that picture, and now because you've seen that picture, you could recognize the reality. You could recognize this little girl who is at Stonegate today, right? That's what a picture is for. It's meant to to be an accurate representation of the real thing so that a person could, could recognize the real thing. Now, that is what your life is for. You are royalty designed to display God. You were made to be a mirror. Or maybe we could think of it this way. We were made to tell the truth about God with our lives. This is what your life is for. Every day when you wake up, if you're asking the, the question, what, what, gosh, I feel so aimless today. What is my life for? Here's what your life is for. In every word and deed and desire for you to show God. For your life to say a true thing about God in every one of those areas, in every one of those moments. We were made to tell the truth about God with our lives. So why do we say true things with our words? Well, there's a lot of reasons that we might give. Uh, we want people to trust our words, right? We, we, if we tell a big lie, we don't want to go to prison. So there's a lot of reasons that we tell the truth with our words, right? But here's the, the most foundational thing we could say about why we tell the truth with our words. We want people to learn that words are trustworthy so that when they hear a word from God, they will trust it. This is what your life is for. If you're married, it's a parable meant to say something true about God. If you're parenting, it's a parable meant to say something true to your kids about God. Everything in your life is meant to say something true about God. Why are we patient with people? Why do we love people? Why why do we value and protect the vulnerable? Why, Why do we sit with a friend when they're in deep grief and weep with them? Why do we do all of these things? Why is it that a husband would lay down his life for his wife? Why do we go out of our way to show kindness to people? Why do we do all of those things? Here's the reason we want to tell the truth about God with our lives. It's what we were made to do. It is what you were made to do. Now, this is one way to tell the whole story of the scriptures. We were created in the image of God. We didn't achieve that. We received it. God pronounced our royalty over us. You're made in my image after my likeness. But three chapters into the story, the image bearers, meant to reflect God, meant to say true things about God. They failed. They ate the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, as sin rushed into the world, it rushed into us. And it did not destroy the image of God in us, but it damaged it. It it distorted it. It dented it. So think about what we know about humanity east of Eden. Post-Genesis chapter 3. East of Eden, we're all still royalty. We know that. We're still made to tell the truth about God with our lives. But we all know this east of Eden. That our lives keep lying about God. 
you tell lies about God with your life all the time. I tell lies about God with my life all the time that we just can't keep our lives from lying about God. So now patience is replaced with anger, generosity with greed, kindness with outrage. But enter the person of Jesus, the ultimate image bearer. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we learn that he is, Jesus is the image, not an image. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, all you need to do is look at Jesus. He is the perfect representation. He is the perfect picture of the humility of God, the generosity of God, the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the conviction of God, the, the truth-telling nature of God. In every word, thought, deed, and desire, Jesus is perfect. He is the perfect image. But Jesus was not only the ultimate image bearer, he was also our substitute. Jesus came not just to show us God, but to save us from all the ways our lives lie about God. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the punishment of every lie our lives have ever told. Why did Jesus do that? Well, 1 Peter 2, 24 gives us the answer. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did Jesus do that? Why was he our substitute? Here's the reason. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, Peter says. Jesus, the ultimate image bearer, died so that the restoration process could begin, so that your royalty could be renewed and refreshed, that that process could begin of making you what you once were. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? There you go. That is what Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead to do in you, to make you new. And friends, there is a day coming for all of those in Christ where the image of God is going to be fully restored in them. Fully restored. And just look, look around at the faces in this room. There is a day coming for all of these faces that are in Christ in this room where them fully restored is going to appear before you and they are going to be barely recognizable to you. They are going to absolutely blow you away. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That's the image that Jesus came to restore, to renew, to, to remake, to recreate in you. That, that's what Jesus came to live for, to die for, and to come back from the grave for. And until then, church family, may we keep looking to Jesus and throwing our life upon Jesus. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? I want to give you a moment to just receive from the Lord, to allow the Spirit of God to press down into your heart what would be most helpful for you today and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful.
And maybe you could ask the Lord, will you show me the one thing today you want me to receive from you as I stare right into the face of who I am, royalty, what I'm not, not God, what I'm made for, to rule for God, to reflect God. What, what is it that the Lord would have for you today? What's he want to do in you? What's he want to say to you today? Father, would you show us? Would you speak to us? Would you visit us now in a way that would change us, conform us to the image of the ultimate image bearer, Jesus? God, I pray that for this precious church family. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.